Well, we're in our series, What is God Like? And I've said this already twice in each of the first two series messages. In order to know what God is like, the first thing you have to have is a relationship with him. Listen, you can know everything there is to know about God. You can know every attribute of God. You can know uh, all of the theological terms, all, uh, all of the, the-, the doctrine and explaining God. You can know all of those things about God. But if you really want to know what God is like, you have to have a personal relationship with him. And we talked about last week in the Trinity, in in order to have a personal relationship with God, it comes through the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and him alone? If not, today is the day to do that. Today is the day to stand up and say, yes, I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm not going to trust in my money. I'm not going to trust in my talents. I'm not going to trust in the world around me. I'm not going to trust in the knowledge that I can gain. I'm not going to trust in my employment or my family or what my mama and daddy did. I am going to trust in Jesus and him alone. And if you want to have a personal and real relationship with Jesus, if you want to know what God is like, it starts there. And so at the end of this message, I will be here on the floor. And it's your invitation to come and say, Brother David, I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to have a personal relationship with him. Now, theologically speaking, when we talk about what God is like, God is very much like us and very much different than us. Now, that, that's uh, oxymoron, but it is absolutely true that God is very much like us, but at the same time very much different than we are. And when we find out what God is like, we have to talk about the attributes of God, those things that, that make God who he is. You think about an attribute, every single one of you in this room has an attribute or have many attributes. Some of you are beautiful, and then some of you are like Johnny, not so beautiful. Always picking on Johnny. Some of you are talented or smart. Some of you are not very smart. I didn't say Johnny's name, but you know. But we all have different attributes. And when it comes to God, he too has attributes. And these attributes are are who we are. It makes up our character. Uh, When when you think about all of your attributes and you roll them up together and you put them inside of you, it is who you are. And so when we talk about God and his attributes, we roll them up all together and we put them inside of God and it is who he is. It's his character. It's how he relates to you and I. It's how he relates to the world. It is how we get to know him in a personal and real way. This is how we know what he is like. So when we talk about the character or the attributes of God, I said that he was very much like us but very much different from us. So what does that mean? That God has two different sets of attributes. And one set of attributes we call incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes. This means that these are the attributes that God and he alone has and no one or nothing else could have these attributes. He's omniscient means that he knows everything. He's omnipotent, means that he's all-powerful. There is nothing that he can't do that would go against his character. I mean, you talk about all of these things that God is like, and God is different from us. He's immutable, means that he doesn't change, but we change all the time, don't we? 
And, and so he has these sets of attributes that he and he alone has, and no one can share those attributes with him. It, it's these incommunicable attributes is a, is a way to say that God is fi, uh, finite or infinite, and we are finite. That God is infinite in everything, and we are finite in everything. And there are just some attributes of God that we cannot share with him. They're called incommunicable attributes. And then on the other, sa- other side of the coin, there are communicable attributes. These are the attributes that not only should we or can we share with God, but we should share with God. And you think about those communicable attributes like love and hate. Did you know that? And jealous. These are also attributes of God that he has for us and that we too should share with him. Mercy and grace and all of these other different attributes. You know, we sang in the first service the, the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. One of my favorite all-time songs. One of my favorite hymns. And as we were singing, holy, 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 I couldn't help but think that God himself is holy. And every time when you see in Scripture, when the heavens are talking about God, whether it's in in Isaiah 6 or all throughout Revelation, it is always holy, holy, holy. I mean, it is unbelievable. And at the same time, God is holy, holy, holy. We too are to be holy. This is one of the communicable attributes of God that we can share with him, that we can be holy as he is. Maybe an easier way of understanding all of this is the incommunicable attributes of God show us how God is different from us, while the communicable attributes show us how God is like us, and we are like him. Now, one more thing before we begin. Because when you're talking about this sovereign, infinite, uh, omnipotent being God and all of these when you start talking about his attributes attributes and you talk about God himself just like with the Trinity there are things that we just will never understand period whether on this side of heaven or that side of heaven there are just things about God that we just won't understand and so when you look at scripture and you read what the Bible says about who God is and what God is like, the scripture, God, uh, forgive me for this, but God kind of dummied himself down for us, you know? And and so in order for us to know what God is like, to know who God is, he, he can only do that in language that we understand, right? He can only do that through experiences that we can understand. And so when we're reading scripture, uh, we come across things like God has hands and feet. You've seen those passages before. We call this anthropomorphic language. And that is language which means the Bible speaks of God in human terms because we can only know and understand God in human terms, right? God is spirit. Now, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ was both 100% human and 100% God. But when we talk of God, the Father, and God, their spirit, they do not have literal hands and feet, but yet we can understand what God is like by using terms that we know and experience, okay? And so remember that as we read Scripture and we understand what God is like, sometimes 
the, even the words of Scripture don't do it justice for who God is and what it's like, okay? So, also, just another little point here. As you look around creation, almost everything in creation tells us a story about who God is as well. After all, you know, I had, it was, uh, I think it was this last Wednesday night, or, or one Wednesday night, the kids in, in Awana were saying that, one of the kids was saying, we're just animals. And I said, no, no, we are different. And one of the reasons that we can know what God is like, because he created us in his image. We are different from every other creation in the world. And so we can look at each other and get a sense of who God is and what he is like. So that is our introduction. So let's talk about the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, we looked at one of these last week, with, which is his self-existence. And we learned a new word last week. That word is aseity. And it means that God comes from himself, that there was nothing outside of God that helped create God. God is and has come from himself. He needed nothing else or no one else to help create him. And, and we learned that that word aseity means that when God came from himself, and yet at the same time, everything created can bring him glory and joy. And you think about, why are you here? Why are you here on this earth? I mean, that's the big question. That's what everybody wants. Why am I here? Well, we're here to bring him glory and joy. That's why we're here. We're here to bring him glory and joy. Another attribute of God that we talked about last week was the attribute of the Trinity, which we talked about in the infinity of God. Or, or the, uh, you talk about, when you talk about the Trinity, see, again, we have to talk about God in terms that only we can understand in the terms of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons with one essence. And even though we can kind of wrap our head around it, we will never fully comprehend what God is like when it comes to the Trinity and his infiniteness because we are finite. We have uh, liabilities. We have limits and God has no limits and no liabilities. He is out there. And when you talk about God and his infiniteness, and even in the Trinity, we see the transcendence of God. You know what that word transcendent means? It means that he is above, that he is far and above everything else in the whole world. He is not only the creator, but he is above. He looks down on his creation, so we see his transcendence. But part of his, and this is what is great about Christianity, when you talk about the Christian God, when you talk about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, when you talk about the God that you and I believe in, he is different from every other God that you can imagine. Every other God with a little g, he is different then. Because not only is he trans transcendent, he is up there looking down. He is above all things. At the same time, he's personal. And we see that in the Trinity, didn't we not? We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit that is transcendent. And you go back to Genesis 1-2 and we see the Spirit of God hovering over all creation. We see God in his transcendence. But through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, we see a personal God. A God who has stepped out of heaven onto this earth so that we could know him in a real way. What a great thing. So God is infinite. He's transcendent. He's self-existent. 
and he is a personal God. And the next one that I want to talk about is that we have a God that, who is immutable. You know what that word immutable means? It means unchanging. We have a God that never changes. God is unchanging in his being, in his perfection, in his purpose, and his promises. Now, that's important to remember all of those things. God is unchanging in his being, in his perfection, in his purposes, and in his promises. Now, you also need to know when we talk about the immutability, the unchangingness of God, when we talk about the unchangingness of God, we also need to know that God sometimes acts according to our actions and to our obedience. That is very important. God is unchanging. He's immutable. But sometimes our actions and our obedience will change circumstances which will change outcomes. And I'll show you how that works in just a minute. And then one other thing, when we're talking about his immutability, there are a lot of folks that say that God doesn't have any emotions. Like our Catholic friends, they will say that God is impassable. And that word impassable means has no emotions. But God has emotions. I mean, you think about, we just look at Jesus, right? In John chapter 11, when Jesus, well, he knew that Lazarus has died. And so he waited four days because he had something greater that he wanted to show him. But when he finally gets there and Mary and Martha come up to him and Mary and Martha are weeping for their brother Lazarus, what does Jesus do? He weeps. He shows emotion. He, he has grief in his heart. And, and when you talk about Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We see the anger of God. So God has the emotion of anger. And you remember when Jesus overturned the money tables, the money changer tables in the temple. He had righteous anger, and it's okay, as long as it is righteous anger. And what about compassion? Is compassion an emotion? The psalmist writes, for the Lord will vindicate him before and have compassion on his servants. And we can see that he has joy, and he has love, and he has jealousy. We see all of these different emotions that God has. So I think it's safe to say that God is not impassable, but he has emotions, and so when you're talking with someone that says, oh, well, God just kind of wound the place up and left it, and he, he's emotionless. No. He has a, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the unchanging attribute of God. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is saying to his people, I have given you a promise. That promise I will not break. I will not change. And because I won't change, because you can take that to the bank, that I am who I said I am in everything and every purpose and every promise that I've given you, that you can take that to the bank, and because of that, you will not be consumed. And if you go over to uh, Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, has he said, and will he not do it? So God is clear. He says, listen, I'm not like mankind. You guys change your mind all the time. 
I mean, watching my wife dress is like you see how many times a person can change their mind in 15 minutes. It's incredible, right? And yes, I'm going to get in trouble. So we understand that we as human beings, as, as finite human beings, we change our mind. But it's safe to say that God does not change. And another one of his attributes is om, omniscience. And we'll talk about this one next week. But we all know omniscience means that God knows everything. But it's much greater than that. And how can a God who knows everything ever repent or change? See, if God knows, if God is truly omniscient and he knows everything, then every decision that he makes has to be the right decision, period, right? And if God repented or if God changed his mind, it means then that the, his omniscient wasn't real and he must have made a mistake and he had to change. And we know that that is not true, right? And I know what some of you Bible scholars out there, I know so what you're thinking, okay, I got you, Brother David. God is immutable. He does not change. Well, how do you account for Moses changing God's mind? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Exodus 32. We'll be in Exodus 32 for the next few minutes. And I see what's happening out there because if you remember what was going on, Moses is coming down from the mountain twice. This is his second time. The first time he went up, destroyed the tablets, he had to go up and get them again, and now he's come down, and when he comes down with the tablets, the Ten Commandments of God, what does he see? He sees the people, of the Hebrew people, the people that God has saved, the people that, that have seen over and over and over again the miracles of God, right? And when Moses comes down from the mountain, they're worshiping this golden calf. They're having a party like you wouldn't believe. And how does God respond to them? How does God, um, when, when all of that has happened, how does God respond? Look in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. What? God's angry, isn't he? I mean, he is mad. And what does he want to do? He wants to destroy every single person and start over with Moses. And you know what happens? Well, I tell you what, turn to Numbers 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 14. And in Numbers 14, we see a very similar story. Moses is there. He sends out 12 spies. They're finally made it to the promised land. They've made it to Canaan. They are ready to conquer. They're ready to move forward. So he spent, sends out 10 spies. And when those spies come back, 10 of those spies says, oh, we can't do it. They're like, they're like giants and we're like little grasshoppers to them. There's no way we can make it. But Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it with God's help. We're going to make it. And guess what? The people listened to the 10 naysayers until instead of the two yaysayers and what did God do look in verse 14 and in verse 11 in numbers 14 and the Lord said to Moses how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs all of the miracles that I have done among them I will strike them with a pestilence and disherit them and I will make of you Moses a nation greater and mightier than they 
Wow. Twice. Twice. In just a matter of a couple of years or less, God says, I'm ready to destroy everybody and start over with you, Moses. I mean, he is angry. And what about Nineveh? You remember the story of Jonah and Nineveh? Jonah is called by God, and he's a prophet of God, and God says, okay, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach, uh, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then Jonah doesn't want to do that, does he? And what does Jonah do? He runs, and God gets his attention in a big fish. He ends up in the belly of a fish, gets spit up, and he hightails it to Nineveh. And why didn't Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Because they were his enemy, and he didn't want them to be saved. That's the reason. And yet, when he gets there, he does exactly what God says. He goes, yet in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And at the end of that 40 days, was Nineveh overthrown? Was it destroyed? The answer is no. Why? When you look back in Exodus 32 and Numbers 14, did God destroy the Hebrew people and start over with Moses? The answer is no. Why? Because the character of God, when you take all those attributes of God, and the character of God will only allow him to do what is right. And what is right is always for our good and his glory. And when you look at it like this, when go go back to Numbers and into Exodus for a minute. When now let's go here. I'm changing up on you. In Jonah chapter three, and in verse uh, ten, it says. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did not. Now, if I read that, and you notice that I put that in the King James Version, because that's what it says here in the King James Version, that God repented of the evil. Now, how can a holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient God repent of evil? He can't, can he? Go back to Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. What happened there? In verse 14 in Exodus 32, remember, God's ready to destroy them. But in verse 14, it says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. So again, it says that God repented. Now, if you go to Numbers 14, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses' word. I have pardoned them according to your word, Moses. So if you read these, it sure looks like God repented or at least changed his mind, right? I mean, every time it looks like that, that's what happened. What was the purpose of God sending Jonah to Nineveh? Do you think God sent Jonah to Nineveh to go nanny, nanny, boo, boo, in 40 days? I'm going to kill you. No. God wouldn't do that, right? That was not his purpose. His purpose was to go 
and preach in 40 days if you don't repent. God's going to destroy you. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that. You can go read all the chapters in Jonah, and you'll see that it doesn't explicitly say that. But that is what God had in mind. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent Jonah. He would have just destroyed them. Why did he need Jonah? But he sent Jonah to say, listen, if you see in the circumstance, in the situation that they were in, if they did not repent, guess what? God was going to destroy them. He gave them 40 days to repent. But because they repented, God did not destroy them. Did God change his mind? No. The situation changed. The people repented. They were obedient. They did what they were supposed to do. So God didn't change. The people changed. Listen, when you pray, it is never us praying that God would change. It's always that God would change us and change the situations that we're in. And if you go back to Exodus 32 and in Numbers 14, we see a very similar thing to happen. In verse 14, it says, And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto the people. Why? Why did he repent? But he didn't repent, right? The circumstances changed once again. God is so angry at his people that he says, listen, Moses, I just might as well start over with you. And what does Moses do? He falls on his face before a holy God and pleads with God, hey, listen, don't you remember God? He, it's not like God needed to be reminded, though. But he says, don't you remember that all those great things that you did, how the other nations, how the other kings, how the other people of the world saw how you worked so mightily in and through your people to save them and deliver them out of bondage? Why would you do that? You see what happened? The circumstances changed. God didn't change. If Moses wouldn't have got on his knees and prayed before God, I believe in all of my heart that God would have destroyed the people, like he said. But the circumstances changed. The whole thing changed because there was a God that was listening to a man pray. See, like Nineveh, the situation changed. Moses prayed on their behalf. And Moses' prayer was the change agent, and God responded accordingly by answering Moses' prayer by withholding judgment. Now, if you truly understand what that means, you should be giddy with joy. Because you think about all of those times that you've been praying for something and you think that it hasn't made a hill of beans of difference. Let me tell you, it does. Whether you see it on this earth or not. You know that child that you've been praying for for the last 30 years? Listen, you should be excited not to give up praying for that child. Because look, we understand that prayer changes things. It does not change God, but it can change the circumstance. It can change the person. And because of the circumstances and the person that changes, it will change the actions. 
And so if you've been praying for a, a wayward child, if you've been praying for a new job, if you've been praying for X, Y, or Z, and you feel like God is not listening to you, and you feel like you're just barking up the wrong tree, and you feel like that your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, let me tell you, keep doing it. Because if Moses wouldn't have got on his face before God's people, the circumstances wouldn't have changed and God would have done what he said he would do. And he would have destroyed them all. So pray. And you think about Jesus. When the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? And he tells them the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11. Remember, our Father who art in heaven, and, and, and he tells them, after he tells them how to pray in the Lord, what we call the Lord's Prayer, what does he do? He gives a parable. And what does he say in that parable? He's saying, hey, listen, if somebody comes to your house and you and your wife and your kids are all in the house, the doors are locked, every light is turned off, everybody's asleep, and you hear somebody knocking on the door, what do you do? Well, you ignore them. But if they keep on knocking, you go, hey, what do you want? Well, give me something to eat. No, go away. They keep knocking. What do you do? You eventually get up and go get them something to eat so they get off your front porch, right? And see, we cannot build our whole theology of prayer around this one parable, but what we can say, and the point of the parable is, hey, don't pester, is not to pester God until he gives you what you want. That is not the point of the parable. The point of the parable, though, is to be persistent in praying to God, because what did Jesus said? He said, keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Keep on doing it. And it goes back to with Moses and, and, and with God in Numbers and in, in Exodus, Listen, we have to be on our face in prayer. And we keep on asking. Even when we don't feel the answer. We keep on seeking even when we can't see the answer. And we keep on knocking even when we don't know the answer is right in front of us. We keep doing it because your prayers are changing the situation. That's exciting. And you remember what James says? He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, and when you're on your knees and you're praying for that family member, when you're praying for that wayward child, when you're praying for that job, when you're praying for that relationship to be healed, listen, you are a powerful person. You have all the power of God, the creator, praying with you. Man. The next attribute is the doctrine of God's eternity. The eternality of God. And this ties in both with his self-existence and his immutability. And what it means is that we are very much like God, right? Because there are attributes that we should share with God. But his eternality, his eternity is different from ours. When we are born again, we will live forever in heaven, right? And so we will have an eternal future. And listen, you don't just have to be born again believer in Christ to have an eternal future. Even those who have rejected Christ, those who have never put their faith and trust in Jesus, they will have an eternal future in hell. And so there is no difference between one who is saved and one who is not saved. We all have an eternal future. But what makes us different from God, he has no beginning and we do. He has a no beginning, and yet we do have a beginning. 
God sees specific events and acts in time. Here, here's the definition. It, God has no beginning or end. He sees all moments of time with equal clarity. And at the same time, God sees specific events and acts in that time. So we see that God is timeless. Psalm verse nine, uh, chapter 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He has always been there. And Jesus told the Pharisees when they said, who are you? Where do you get your authority? What makes you think you're such a big deal? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He has always been God. He has no beginning. And another aspect of God's eternality is that he sees all time with equal clarity. Go back to Psalm, chapter, uh, cha- Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You know what that means? The psalmist is telling us that even an event that happened a thousand years ago is like yesterday to God. Now, I've discovered something now that I am officially a senior adult at 55 years old. My memory is not as good as it used to be. I cannot remember with equal clarity what happened a week ago. and It just happened a week ago. And you try to think back 50 years, there's no way I can be clear and accurate of what happened 50 years ago. My memory just will not allow me to do that. And maybe some of you can understand and appreciate that. Peter writes, it's Peter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Well, what in the world is Peter telling us? What Peter is saying that you pick the day, any one day. It doesn't matter what day it was. It could be a day from 1952 or a day from 1852 or a day from 52 B.C. He says it doesn't matter. You pick the day, whatever the day is, and as, it's as if that day has never ended for God. Now that's amazing, isn't it? That God in his eternality... Nothing ever gets by him. Nothing slips by. He has equal clarity, equal memory on every single day. And it's as if that day happened all the time for God. He never forgets it. He sees it with clarity, and yet we forget, don't we? But not God. And and here's why all of this is important. The reason this is important, because if I were God, and if you were God, probably you'd do the same thing as I would. You would have sent Jesus brave prior before he sent him. I mean, why did God send Moses and Abraham and David and all the prophets? If it was me, I would have just sent sent Jesus and get this thing over with, right? But God didn't do that. Because God knew it wasn't the right time. If you go over to Galatians chapter 4, what does it say? It says in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time came. God knew because of his eternity, because his eternality, because he can see things in time. It's as if yesterday was today, and it's as if 
uh, a thousand years ago has never ended. And for God, he acted within that time. And when he acted within that time, he saw the fullness of time. He saw at the exact right time, at the perfect time, when all of Rome has brought everybody together with one language and all of these different ways. He said in the fullness of time, he sent his son. Here's how I would explain that to somebody. I would explain it like this. If you and I went to a parade, and we go together to a parade, and I stop at 5th Street, and I watch the parade, but you go three blocks ahead of me, and you're sitting on 8th Street watching the parade, you know we're going to see the exact same parade, are we not? But we're going to see the parade from different vantage spots and, and, and different time, aren't we? Because when the parade starts and Snoopy comes by, when Snoopy comes floating by, whoo, you know, I'm going to see Snoopy before you see Snoopy. And by the time you get to see Snoopy over here, because you're three blocks away, you're going to see Snoopy from a different vantage point, and you're going to see it at a different time. For me, Snoopy has already passed. But for you, Snoopy is already future or present because you're seeing him right now, right? And you think about it, if we went up into a Goodyear blimp, before we get to the blimp, and also think about the parade, we get to see the parade from one vantage point. I see it coming this way to that way, and by the time I see the front of it, you haven't seen the front of it, so you have a different time perspective than I do. But by the time it gets to the end of me, you still have a few more cars to see. The floats come by, and by the time it gets to you, the, the parade is passed. And we can only see one moment of the parade at a time from one vantage point. But if we go up into a Goodyear blimp, and we're both in the same blimp, and we're walking watching the parade go by. We can see the beginning of the parade, we can see the end of the parade, and we can see Snoopy come floating by at the same vantage point, at the same exact time, can we not? And it's like that with God. God in heaven is up there and he looks down and he sees the garden and Adam and Eve and he sees the second coming of Jesus Christ with equal clarity, even though this one hasn't happened yet. But he still sees it. And he knows it's going to happen with equal clarity. See, from our vantage point, we can't see it. We believe it. We know it. We can trust in it. But for God, he's already seen it happen. What a great thing that is. And if you bring it even a little bit closer, God, while you were in your womb, the Bible says in Psalms, it says, he knew you while you were in your mama's womb. He formed you and he knitted you together. He knows when you were created at that point, he said, hey, there is my child to be. He knew you. And he knows you for eternal future. Whether it's in heaven or hell, the choice is yours. And he knows every stop in between. He knows that time when you were a kid when that person did something bad and ugly to you and he saw it and he knows and he says, I'm here for you. And he sees it when the doctor said that you got the C word. God sees it and he knows it and he says, I'm here for you. And he acts in those times for us. That's good news, isn't it? He sees every step of the way 
we can't do that. And why does he do that? And why does God act in time? Well, if you go back to Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The law. So why did God send Jesus at this perfect time? The answer is right there in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Incredible. Incredible. At the exact right time in human history, God acted. And when he acted, he sent his son. I told you at the very beginning, if you want to know what God is like, you have to know his son. You have to trust in his son. You have to have a relationship with, your son, with his son. And the reason is, is because at the right time, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son to redeem those who were born under the law. I led a young lady to Christ on Wednesday night. And we use this word redeemed, and she didn't know what the word meant. I said, you know what, this word redeem, it, it comes from slavery. And because of sin, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, when they ate that fruit, they sold us into slavery. And the slave master is Satan himself. But God redeemed us. How did he do that? He bought us back by sending his son at just the right time. And he bought us back. He redeemed us so that we could have freedom to live in him. Whether you're watching online or here in person, have you been redeemed? You want to know what God is like? Trust in his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your attributes, even when we can't fully understand them. We know that it is who you are. And you always want our good and for us to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, let's stand together. Maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need a prayer. Maybe you need to trust in Christ. Whatever it is, this time is for you. Let's sing.